0: Dr. Mike Grevelis is a professor of psychology at the University of Sioux Falls in South Dakota. He teaches courses in sports psychology, motivation and emotion, and behavioral neuroscience. He has also served as a motivation and performance coach to golfers and other athletes for over 20 years. In this episode, we cover a lot of topics related to the mind and performance, misconceptions Dr. Grevelis sees in the golf psychology world, the value of meditation for golfers, how neuroplasticity changes with age, and the key role of focus during practice for making changes in how we move. Just a reminder before we get started that fit for golf has its own app with programs to suit all levels of golf and fitness. There are programs for at home and at the gym, and if you're skeptical about getting started, there are workouts of just five minutes in duration. You can try the app for one month for just $1 with the code TRYFFG. Go to fitforgolf.app to sign up. Now to the interview. I am very happy to be joined by Dr. Mike Grevelis. Mike, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Mike, for the invite to have this conversation. It'll be good.
0: It's my pleasure. Can you start, please, Mike, by bringing the listeners up to speed on your background?
1: Sure. Yeah, so my, uh, my educational background is a doctorate in psychology. My, the doctorate's in a focus in learning, motivation, and cognition. Um, my dissertation was on golf and uh, expertise in golf. It was a uh, combination qualitative, quantitative research study in which I compared the number one team in the nation in female collegiate golf, uh, with a d two team and we, i looked at practice deliberate practice various other skill acquisition processes and looked at the differences between some of those uh the players that were in the best team in the nation versus d two team and that was my dissertation um i've been a professor for many years i was a counselor for a couple of years but then i i i uh' I've been a professor for i, I can't twenty some years and uh I've taught 25 different psychology courses at the college level and that's been a lot of fun over the years, um, creating a new course, really getting a deeper knowledge in a lot of the different areas across psychology for the purpose um, of being able to teach a course and continue teaching that course. But what's the benefit of that has been I've been able to see the the various threads across all these different sub in psychology, which helps you have a, a better understanding of what's going on with people. And I, I think that's really been of help to me. Golf, uh, my relation to golf, um, it's been both educational in terms of every time I teach a course, a new course, I definitely apply it to golf because it's been a, one of my favorite sports over the years started playing when I was about 12, um, all recreational. It wasn't until I ended my baseball career at about 28 that I ended up being more serious about golf. And I started to, uh, really focus in on whatever we could, whatever principles in psychology that we could focus on with in human life in general. I would also do that in golf. I'd be taking notes and making all these, uh, try to create some new insights there. And, and then, um, my, uh, our three children, my wife and I, our three children all played golf they all played coll- collegiate golf and my son now is playing uh professionally and so um it's been a an amazing experience with our family we've taken so many golf vacations and around tournaments and made sure we had a lot of fun doing a number of other things as well so uh that's pretty that's my background i would say that might be most relevant to yeah our so conversation. you've had you've
0: had plenty of experience and trial and error trying to apply what you've learned oh, oh uh, gosh, from your yes. academic life into <laughs> the real world.
1: That's for sure. I should say, I mean, I've been working with, with athletes for over 20 years too. I forgot that part, which has been a, a very, it's been a blast. I would say I started out working with golfers. It's spread out to a number of different sports. Now it's primarily golf again, probably since the book came out, it's, it's been mostly golf again. And so I've never worked with a PGA tour player um, to that level, but I've worked with the uh, corn fairy tour all the different developmental tours. Um, and I still do now. And um, that's, it's been fun. I I'll work with a 12 year old who can't even break a hundred to, uh, to a corn fairy tour player. Um, and so I, I get the same level of enjoyment and I'd say satisfaction, no matter who it is, as, lo- as long as there's place for growth, as you would know, working with people, anytime there's place for growth, it doesn't matter what level they're at. It's just uh it's really satisfying when you see the, the results.
0: Yeah, when people are committed to improving and you feel like you're helping them, I think that's uh generally the biggest reward. It is really. Mike, as you've spent more time as a professor, is there any disciplines of psychology you've become more interested in or you feel have more
1: applicability to golf? Yeah. Uh well, the two that I have spent most of my time with uh, is the, motive, the science of motivation and neuroscience. And um, those two, I, of course, I teach sports psychology as well every semester. And so those three, I would have to say, those are the three areas that um, you find all these synergistic similarities across what you learn in those areas. I would say though, scientifically, motivation and neuroscience are the absolute most relevant, important. Now, I will make a comment about neuroscience um, there's a lot of pseudo neuroscience I'll say that, and the reason why partly is just because of the nature of the field um, part of it also is a lot that's been disseminated in the public, and when people don't have a lot of a broad and deep knowledge of the area, it's easy just to make mistakes and jump to certain conclusions. But neuroscience is, is interesting because uh, as, as much as it's dealing with physical matter, which is which a lot of people think that's much more objective. You're dealing with the brain matter, right? But in fact, it still has limitations in the sense that there's a lot of correlational data is basically what it is most of the time. And you're still left trying to figure out what it means when certain areas of the brain are active during certain activities, certain mental activities specifically. And so it is an area that needs to be studied and studied carefully, and the interpretations that we draw from it need to be done with responsibility. But Having said that, it's incredible the 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 uh, growth in knowledge about the brain over the last 10 to 15 years. It's But it's been growing gradually for a lot longer than that. But the last 10 or 15, it's incredible. And that's mostly because we have better theories in psychology. And a lot of people don't understand that neuroscience requires psychology for us to even understand what's going on in the brain. So we need to have good theories in psychology in order to interpret what's happening with the data, with functional MRIs, et cetera. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there because it's a a great field, and we're going to continue to learn incredible things from it. And I've learned incredibly practical uh, conceptual ideas that have applied directly to golfers. But if we don't have the understanding of psychology, the brain studies don't give us a whole lot of information. And then they're not as practical and applicable to to sport.
0: In terms of neuroscience being shrouded in a little bit of pseudoscience in the golf space, is there any particular topics that you see that happening with? Can you give examples? Because yeah. something I kind of want to make sure of for me, but also the listeners, is that mm-hmm. these are terms that are sometimes a little bit hard to understand exactly what is this person talking about So neuroscience motivation but in terms of neuroscience people might understand the actual topics you're talking about if you can give examples of you know this has been written about online or there's a book about this but it's actually not really backed up
1: yeah um mm. two come to mind right away and uh um this is not to uh criticize any individuals but it's important for people to to be um, critical consumers of information. So I'll give you one. There's one idea that's been thrown out there quite a bit that the uh, in order to play your best golf, you need to shut down your prefrontal cortex. Now your prefrontal cortex is this whole area right in here. Now the prefrontal cortex is involved in so many different functional activities, uh, including goal-directed behavior. Our value systems and belief systems are are really stored in those areas. Our ability to anticipate the future, to make a plan about what we want to do. All of that's happening here. The uh, uh, Our ability to uh, plan a movement, a swing, a stroke, all of that's going on here. It's, there's a number of areas that interact together. All the motivational stuff, not all, I should say it's some of the more, the more conscious motivational uh, factors are happening right in here. Now, So when 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 people say we got to shut off our prefrontal cortex in order to play well, that's a that's just a just absolutely wrong. And it gives kind of an idea that we just have to stop thinking in order to play good golf. You're not going to stop thinking. We're not going to stop having motivation. We're not going to stop having goals. We're not going to stop anticipating what could happen. That happens automatically and even unconsciously even though that's happening here in the prefrontal cortex. And so it's important for people to understand that it's okay to, to use your conscious mind directly to create strategies to help you play better, um, be more consistent, be more repetitive with your swing during practice, during competition, etc. So that's just a, such an oversimplification. It's just important for people to understand that. Um, secondly, there's some work with brainwaves. And the idea, we have alpha waves, we have theta waves, beta waves, gamma waves. They're all, basically a a brain wave is a result. It's not really the actual thing happening in the brain. A brain wave is what happens when you um, use an electroencephalograph, which is an EEG, which is just electrodes on the outside of your head that are picking up electrical activity in the brain. So electrical activity has different frequencies. So some are slower, some are faster, and you have these four ma- uh, major types. And there's some work being done now—not really work, I'd say. There's this idea of being thrown out right now that we need to be in alpha and theta, which are the slower frequency waves, in order to play good golf and to be in a good mental state or a constructive mental state. But that—that's re- uh, ignoring much of the research in terms of of the whole brain and its. What an EEG does is it's really good at being able to pick up electrical activity in your brain fast. It happens very quick in real time. However, it's really poor in knowing what's where it's ha, where it's sourcing from in the brain. And if you don't know where it's sourcing sourcing from, you don't know a whole lot. That's the downside of EEGs. The other thing is a lot of research shows that gamma waves which are really fast, they're being told People are being taught that this is a bad thing for motor movements. It actually is very important for helping plan and integrate motor movements. So there's some really good research out um, in, in universities in California that are, that are doing this work. So those are just a couple areas. I would say right away, when you hear these types of things, we've got to be careful that they're always they're almost always oversimplified. The brain has so many different interactions We are really only at the beginning of understanding the complexity of the brain, and but we do know enough to be able to figure out how does how does uh, motivational factors, uh, cognitive factors interplay with with movement, so that we have a pretty good idea about what's going with going on with movement, even though we still need to learn more
0: in terms of those brain waves and being oversimplified yeah is that mainly because scientists in general just don't know enough about exactly what's going on yet or that it's too hard to study while people are playing golf
1: well that's been a difficulty over the time because you have these uh, artifacts they're called which is even blinking is an artifact which impacts the uh the results of an e e g so um they're getting better at being able to create algorithms to subtract out those artifacts. But overall, there's two reasons. Number number one, we don't know enough about um, how the electrical frequencies work in all the different areas of the brain For in, at any particular time to be able to predict exactly what it means. Electrical activity is very kind of crude still. I would say it's still crude. The functional MRIs that don't do very good job of being able to figure out what's, when something's happening within milliseconds. The EEG does a good job of that. The functional MRIs, et cetera, do a really good job of knowing where things are happening, where all the activity is. So I would say part of it is the technology is not great with the, with the uh, electrical frequencies and the, I should say the frequencies and the uh, brain waves. The second thing is I think the people who are putting that out there they really just don't understand how it all works. They don't understand the brain uh, as well. As, and so that that's part of the issue. Um, there's a little bit of knowledge. They take a little of it. And when people say how that can be dangerous, and that's kind of what's happening.
0: Poor interpretation. Uh, and then poor interpretation. Too, too confident in the conclusions they're drawing with their well interpretation. Well said. You see that in in lots of things, definitely.
1: Well, in your area, too, I'm sure that that
0: happens. I think I think every area, probably there's experts listening in, you know, fields that I know nothing about to this podcast that they do every day and work. And I'm sure kind of no matter what your field is, that's what you're seeing. That's very true. Um, When you were talking about those those factors, Mike, or those elements, something that uh, came to my mind was the focus band which has been used in golf instruction and golf practice a little bit. Are you familiar with it?
1: I'm familiar enough to know the purpose of it and what the general background of it. So I've never used it myself.
0: Do you know what it tries to do? And if there's any research on how effectively it can do it?
1: I'd probably prefer not to mention specifically the focus band because I'm, I, uh, I don't know enough about the research that's been, if, if any research has been utilized with that particular band, et cetera, but I can, I can comment more generally. I would say, um, uh, what you're finding in this whole field of applied brain device devices, headphones or headsets, I should say, that are designed to pick up electrical activity. What you've seen over time is that they're trying to, uh, help a person reduce the, the, uh, the amount of brain activity, right? That's what they're trying to do. So there's slower brain waves. And so that's associated with being more calm. Now, for years, we, we've pretty much known that the alpha brain wave is associated with a real, uh, uh relaxed state, meditation, re- uh, just a relaxation where you, when you quiet your muscles of your body, you're also pretty much going to be quieting your mind. And when you're quieting your mind, you're going to see less frequent or slower uh, brain waves. We'll just put it that way. So with, what a lot of these are trying to do is trying to reduce a, a lot of the brain activity. And the assumption by doing that would be you'll be more relaxed and you'll be able to focus better. Those are the two things they're really focused on. Now, here's the problem with that. Is that we can see athletes who are highly aroused, nervous system arousal high nervous system activation who might have faster frequency brain waves because that's what's necessary to get certain functions accomplished. And that's where there's a misunderstanding where you just have to get it slower. Then you'll focus better and you'll be able to relax. Well, we know we can play great, even nervous. We can have a high brain activity as long as it's focused Properly on what's relevant at the time and we can perform very well. All you have to do is talk to people of one championships when they're shaking and you can see, we'll know for, for a fact and that they can, they can, yes, they can get focused, even though they're the, you would see, um, that their brain activity isn't going to fully match what you're going to see in a training environment with like, uh, with one of these EEG brain uh, uh, headset devices. So I just want to be clear that i it's really cool when you use one of these. I've used one in the past in a training scenario with those with attention deficit hyperactivity mm-hmm. disorder. And, yes, it's really cool when you can get this feedback that you can see when the brain activity changes, you can see changes in a screen. And that makes it seem like, well, that's all you need then. Wow, I can focus better now. Well, here's the issue. You need to transfer it from that situation to new situations. You have a whole different motivational set in that training environment with that apparatus than you do on a golf course. Yes, you want to train yourself to have a pretty good motivational set on the golf course. And that's a lot of what I do, but there's so much more than what, what people are able to get from these devices. I I don't mean to throw the field uh, under the bus or anything cuz they're trying. And there's some there'll be people who say they got a lot of help from it and I I would believe that. Yeah, I would too. But, absolutely. So there it's it's like this. So, here's the thing. Even with uh bad theories. You can have bad or wrong theory and you can have a certain application technique that works for somebody but it doesn't necessarily work for the reasons they think it works. That happens a lot in psychology and mental, in the mental game. So like, for instance, breathing, breathing is you know, great. Uh, you know, I think breathing is a really helpful technique in certain circumstances. And even maybe as a pre-shot routine, or as a part of your routine, right before your shot, I, I'm nothing, nothing against that. I think it's great. It certainly can help uh, with the parasympathetic nervous system. and can help that, but, I don't think that's the only reason breathing helps people. I think breathing helps people because it's a transition from something that was a distraction, was a certain goal that was irrelevant to the task, and now they're using breathing as a transition into a new goal. As soon as you start focusing on your breathing, you've changed your goal already. From something that's been uh, destructive possibly or just a distraction that hurts your focus so now, you're, you're focusing on your breath. Now you've got this time then to switch on to what you really want as a goal or your focus or what you want to really pay attention to. And I think people don't talk about that value of breathing, but that's how I see it. Breathing has that value. And it doesn't even if, if you're not really let's say you're not really uh, you don't have really high nervous system activity. And you're not shallow breathing. You're not holding your breath. You just have a lot of worry. Well, you don't necessarily need to breathe to get yourself into a good performance mindset then. I mean, you're going to breathe, but you don't have to do a formal technical four, four, four breath or something like that. All you got to do is switch your focus to something else and you could use some other transition device. It doesn't have to be breathing. So my point is, Breathing is wonderful and it's a great, a great technique and it can be very uh, useful in very specific situations. However, there are other reasons that people often don't think about that might be the mechanism by which something might work. And and, in my, and I'll just throw this out real quickly. My view is a lot of times, uh, a lot of the mental game techniques, what they're really doing is changing people's goals in the moment. You might call them intentions, but. I call them goals in the moment and their motives in the moment. And those are the things in my, the way I understand it, are really driving the rest of our cognition and our action and our decision making. And so a lot of, even if you change a thought, when you change a thought, you're really changing the way you interpret the meaning of a situation oftentimes. And by doing that, that could trigger a different goal. That could trigger another motive, which really are the, the key movers in the brain to get us to think, feel, emote, or act. And so it's an interesting idea. So I would say that in relation to those um, devices, I think it's kind of works the same way. Sometimes uh, just by relaxing a bit more or at least changing your focus onto this versus this, you might learn that there's value in narrowing your attention better. And by, and you might learn, well, hey, I can do that. I can narrow my attention and this becomes a general strategy I can do in this particular situation and, or this situation. Now you've got a strategy that you realize works, you believe it works, because you've got feedback that shows that you can change the screen by doing that.
0: Yeah. So and instead of your, your mind being consumed by, I need to power the last two holes to break 80 with practice, you can get good at. I'm focusing on my breathing or I'm focusing on X. Is that an example of kind of the application you're suggesting here?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I always just say that that can be the transition technique. People have anchors. They have just various ways to moving away from what's distracting them and that could hurt their performance. And then to move into something that's actually constructive and relevant. And that's a big part of the mental game in reality. And no matter what you're doing, you need to eventually go from the irrelevant to the relevant. And that's a big part of that. So when I work with clients, I'm always trying to help them figure out where their mind has been that's irrelevant and then be able to help them understand what's relevant. And the the definition of it is just where is your, what are you trying to accomplish in this moment? That's actually going to help you get the bigger task accomplished. It's really a simple definition and it's really easy for players to do that once they become aware that that's the issue you know but i think a lot of uh, mental coaches who don't go the route i do get there by trying to help them change their physiology or change their thinking or um, maybe just change their perspective whatever and that will automatically make some of those changes happen i just like to go right after it directly um, to what really to me makes the biggest difference no really good
0: something that i'm curious with any sort of wearable or tech device as well is first and foremost, what's the accuracy and reliability of the device can, can it actually do what it's claiming to do? Because I've used some different sensors in the gym for measuring speeds. You know, there's lots of different fitness wearables. Now they're measuring different physiological statuses and yeah, unless they're, you know, proven that, they can measure what they measure. It's, it's essentially noise. Like it it may not be uh, particularly helpful. I don't know if that's the case with what we're talking about here, but yeah, there's some of that research.
1: Yeah. That's a great question. It's 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 very important that you ask those questions, which obviously people who know you, you're, you're a thoughtful critical thinker in relation to your field for sure. And obviously you are in other areas now as well as I'm learning in in this area, I would, uh, you have to look at the validity and the reliability of the of anything that you're doing and you know here's the other thing i would just throw out um, anyone can go buy these headsets that are eeg related i so see you can go onto these websites of these companies and you can buy them yourself and you can do all sorts of things you want to do with them nobody is going to regulate that and then you can say whatever you want and you might pick up a number of things that you see um Again, we, we don't have enough information on these EEGs and, and just the ability to know what's happening in the brain to be clear on what's exactly happening in the first place and then what the benefits are in the second place. And we certainly aren't at the place where you can distinguish for sure what the thoughts are you don't know what people are thinking in their minds when they're utilizing these devices. And so, but you know, that's very important. So in other words, a brainwave doesn't cause anything. That's a result. As I mentioned earlier, it's just a, it's the result of a graph of all this electrical activity. Electrical activity happens due to the content of the messaging and the strength of the stimuli. So the content of what's going on in your mind is very important. It is critical. And that's why the electrical, uh, the, uh, the frequencies change. It's because of, of what you're doing with your own mind, which we have some control over. So I like to just help people learn how to self-regulate, to direct their mind in ways that they haven't been able to do very well before. Partly because they were unaware of what to even look at and to think about and to change. But secondly, because they haven't practiced it and they haven't, they didn't know that they could even do it. Cause a lot of times when we put our attention on our head and, or even on our mind, it's, it's pretty chaotic for a lot of people. They're not used to it. And a lot of this stuff just seems like things are happening up there. You don't even know, but people can absolutely learn to direct their mind in very specific, intentional ways. And I think, so i think that it's it's really important that um we understand that how the content of what's in your mind does matter because if you change your goal you will change your action you will change your decision you you can change your emotion you change your feeling it's it, it's uh kind of running the show up in our brain and so um people when they're, when they're not really aware of what's going on in the mind, it's easier to kind of fall for some of these other type of, uh, messages that are going to thrown out there in the golf industry.
0: You mentioned breathing the nervous system and meditation, Mike, have you looked into meditation and it's applicability to golf a little bit or a lot?
1: I've, I've looked into it, um, uh, let's see what how do I want to summarize? Uh, meditation, I would I would recommend a meditation for anybody for their health, number one, for health. Um it's meditation is interesting in the sense that it has a couple of special benefits, it seems. One is it helps people get a better sense of who they are. And um secondly, it helps them feel more in control of their everyday lives. Those are really interesting benefits, I think. So it helps with self-regulation. So for that alone, I would say meditation would be wonderful. Of course, it's nice to have um, parasympathetic activity more often than the sympathetic going on when you don't need the sympathetic. So that's all important too. In terms of the practical value in becoming a better golfer, there's that's the big question a lot of people wonder about. Um, If your problem is that you do not know how to direct your mind to let go of distractions very well i think meditation can be a useful tool for sure it is a concentration technique i think it could be useful for that you learn that thoughts come and they go and then you can just return to the thing that's relevant which is the mantra in meditation so i think that's useful I think that meditation is useful for people who have uh, more uh, cognitive anxiety. So there's somatic and there's cognitive. Cognitive anxiety is just worry. I think meditation is really good for people who have a lot of worry. I think there's other techniques that would work better for people who have a lot of physical anxiety symptoms. Um, progressive muscle relaxation would be, to me, the best one i would say to use and that's just that's all out through in the internet and webs people can find this stuff but it's just um is is you're basically contracting certain muscles in sequence from your head to your toe your toe to your head and then you relax it and then you tense it and relax it for a short time and what you're trying to do, do there is learn what what the difference is between tension and relaxation is now for people again who have physical anxiety symptoms and tension in their swing and on the golf course, I think progressive muscle relaxation would be the best for them. If those, if there are people who don't have a great sense of control in their lives and they worry a lot, I think meditation would be the best one for them. So there's always these, it's, it's never just one size fits all one t- technique works best for everybody. I'm, I just, I stay away from that way of thinking because I don't believe it. I always try to individualize and contextualize everything that we do so that the person in front of me, we got to figure out how their that person's mind works with an understanding of the various factors that are going to be playing a role. But how do they all interact together? And then what's best for that person? What's the best place to pay attention for that person? In the What's the best routine for that person? What's the best uh, way of dealing with anxiety for that person? Do we need to go deeper into existential ways of thinking? And some people, they need that because it's a it's a very strong existential anxiety that's much deeper than a golf round or a, their career in golf. So you got to go a little deeper with some people but so you try to individualize it. But I think meditation sometimes it doesn't automatically transfer to the to being playing better. It's like no, nothing does. <laughs> nothing does. <laughs> no, meditation doesn't either. So if people think oh I just got to meditate and that's going to turn me into a great player That's just not going to happen like that. But it does have its great use in it. And I think, uh, you know, like I said before, if somebody said, hey, would it be a good idea to meditate? Yeah, it'd be a good idea to meditate for for anybody.
0: What you were saying there about progressive muscle relaxation, as you were explaining it, I'm sure there is types of meditation that are extremely similar to what you just explained there. You know, so they could almost be under the same blanket at times
1: it it's very true they all have some things in common and they all have some various differences and it's interesting that they seem to have some different um benefits as well but you're right they have the certain main things in common they're all relaxation procedures and all of them can improve um they can be concentration techniques every one of them stretching exercising all could be great concentration techniques it just depends on what you're using it for um and what you're doing with your mind while you're doing it, so.
0: Yeah, if you're under a, uh, a weight that is challenging enough, it's very, very hard to have anything else on your mind. <laughs> when, when people oh, talk gosh. about like mindfulness and clearing your mind, it's interesting. Yeah. So like I've done a reasonable amount of meditation over the last six or seven years, definitely found it beneficial, read a little bit about it, but I also from experience know if you're doing something like uh the last rep of a heavy bench press or a deadlift or something like that, yeah. It's a very, very quick way for your mind to go completely absent except for focusing on one thing. I know it's exactly. not the exact same as being able to do it sort of on command because you're automatically occupied, but it's yeah. it's it's very, very interesting.
1: Well, I'm gonna just throw one two, a quick little uh, vignette beyond what you've already talked about. It's great that you have used it and it's helpful. So it actually can be something that can prevent an injury possibly too, <laughs> right? <laughs> With such heavy weight. Uh, I, I did a meditation for a while that would be a sound. It would be a, a sound I would, I would make. And it would be like, ah. Uh, and I would do a very long ah. Uh, and um, what I know now, and, and I already feel it right this moment, And I only did that regularly for about a year and I have, I don't even, and I'm talking about 10 years ago. Now talk about classical conditioning and association and how things work together. I can do that sound right now and everything just relaxes. I calm down and it it works every single time. Now there's certain places it's not appropriate to make that sound but i can imagine that sound it really it, it's an amazing thing and so one of the things that can happen is that you can create an anchor and this is a very common psychological technique for performers is you create an anchor and you associate that with relaxation and then that anchor is something that you end up doing on the golf course and some people do things like this and they adjust their hat or they they do various things and they 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 uh, do this with the uh, velcro on their glove and Those little things can be trained to become associated with a relaxed state. And I think more people could use breathing for that purpose as an anchor to just get to a relaxed state right away. Because we know that a lot of people who don't train breathing uh, intentionally, breathing doesn't help them much on the golf course. It doesn't relax them because they haven't used it for that purpose. And so we have to be very purposeful with the way what we do in order for that to really make a difference down the road. And so I just thought I'd throw that in there too. And, and it, I don't know if it matters a whole lot what they do as long as it gets connected to that relaxed state and that can trigger that. For me, I've been surprised by the sound and how quickly that can relax me.
0: Mike, when a golfer contacts you looking to do some work with you, what does the initial process look like?
1: Well, um, I I always want to know a little bit of their history right away. So I want to know their experience beginning the game. That's where I usually start because there's going to be some clues there to some possible motivational vulnerabilities that they're still experiencing today. Now everybody has motivational vulnerabilities to a certain extent, and um, because motivation to me is the central aspect of the mental game and the central aspect of movement patterns. That's why I want to know what's happening early. I want to know if they went into it begrudgingly. I want to know who was important that brought them into the game, how it was with them. I was working with a uh, player on the challenge tour and um, this player, I'll just say was incredible junior like one of the best in the world and um, hasn't had the successes. I think a lot of people thought, and the reason they referred him to me was because of the motivational aspect of things. Well, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was that he doesn't like golf. He plays it. Why? Because, well, his dad thought this would be his best chance to be super successful at something. He loves, I won't say what other, I won't give any more details about the person, but he likes another sport a whole lot better. Any given day, he'd much rather play this other sport. And so we want, and so his team wonders, why doesn't he practice enough? You know, he's got all this talent. Why doesn't he practice? And so, you know, we dealt with that. And um, that's what we focused on during the time I worked with him mostly. Not not this, that, but also related to competition, but. It was mostly related to motivational stuff in terms of where he's at with the game and what it all means. Well, if I never would have asked how he began in the game, if I never would have understood what led him into golf and why he kept playing, I would miss a major link to what's happening right now. So it's like, do we expect anyone who doesn't enjoy something just to go want to go do it and go spend all sorts of time doing it? So we had to figure out ways for him to, uh, to care, to get interested. Those are the two words that we use. Care about it and be interested in it. Not like it or enjoy it. Let me, let, let's not go there right away. You know, that's, that's getting a little too. You can't just create fun out of, out of nowhere. So let's try to have you care about it and find interest in it. We talked all through the motivational aspect. And, you know, he's, he had his best year. I will say that. He had his best year, and he ended up very dedicated, just mostly training. He loved training his body. And he did more of the practice and uh, more of the training in terms of his skill development. And um, you know, just, uh, just qualified for the Open. You know, things like that. But there's a lot to it. He had a lot of the skills. But he needed to shore them up. But he didn't like the game. He didn't even want to go to a tournament. But there was a lot of travel on the Challenge Tour you're going to be traveling all over the you know all over europe
0: yeah it's so it's anyway. not it's not uncommon to hear golfers <laughs> that loved golf as a junior and as a right. college player really struggle with you know no. the grind of tour golf it's like is am i still enjoying this you know it's, exactly i've kind of gotten all the time i carried on a tour it's a tough one like you see it really people is. post about it all the time
1: I it's it. true oh, sorry. go ahead it's no it's true um and uh and we, we, those are things that can be fixed. Motivation isn't some stable, static state that has to stay the same. Those, it's very dynamic and shifting. And, and uh, so that's the good news. Um, various motivational states can change.
0: I know you've worked in sports outside golf as well, Mike. Would you say it's uncommon for someone to have, let's say, a successful career for a reasonably long period of time? if they don't love the sport that they're competing in? Or have you seen people who it is literally, no, know, this is just my job. I happen to be really good at it. I don't really like it, but you know, it has enough benefits for me to keep doing it.
1: I do, I do think, um, we probably have most of those people dropping out, but, but there are people who, who end up being in, uh, for a really long time. Now, part of it is, is complicated because there are tour players. I know that for a fact. There are tour players who are fairly miserable on a pretty regular basis. All right. Now, I don't, like I said, I don't work with PGA Tour players. Not that I wouldn't, but I haven't sought that out at all, and it hasn't happened. But I have friend, friends who work with people and so on. So anyway, I know people, that their career is a bit miserable. And part of that is that when you ask tour players how often they they have their A game, for instance, that's a minority of the time. They're they're struggling most of the year. So what do you do with that? You know, that's an important consideration. We got to figure that out, right? Um, so it's not like they're really having a lot of enjoyment. The reason people can can continue to play for such a long time and not enjoy it is the times they do enjoy it. All right. So when is that? Well, that's when they get in contention. That's when they win. And it doesn't happen very often, but when that happens, it just is incredibly satisfying. Um, And when that, and then that can fuel them to, to do what they need to do. Now, The other aspect aspect of it is if they have a group of people that they like other tour players that they hang with and they practice with and so on, that really helps a lot because then they can get enjoyment through the social aspects of things. And that allows them to deal with it and tolerate it. Um, But I, I just think that there's there's different ways we can enjoy things too, Mike. you know, it's like maybe you don't love the game itself maybe you don't love practice and that's what happens a lot. You don't love the practice. It's a, it's a grind. It's uh tedious, boring, but they know they have to in order to do what they actually enjoy. And that is to win or get in contention. So they're willing to do it. And we call that discipline typically, right? Uh, being motivated to do stuff that uh could have some real benefits for us that we do care about. That's no fun. So, you know, that, that can, those, that can happen too. So, it's, it's not as black and white as we like to, you know, try to make it seem. So there's aspects of it that they enjoy probably and aspects of it that they don't enjoy. But a lot of them aren't real happy necessarily. Uh, it all depends on how they, how their life is, how their, their perspective in life and their, their personal lives, their family lives. That becomes a huge part of what makes them happy. Golf probably for some of them is very, um, incremental at times that makes them happy otherwise it's kind of just a grind that's it's really not it's really kind of sad to be honest that's the way it is so where do you go next mike you want to know about people's
0: beginning of the game um, and maybe why they got into it and exactly what happens when you dig a little bit deeper
1: all right so then i want to know i want to know their highlights their best successes in their lives and their worst moments and then i also want to know of course what's going on now What's happening now that you're coming to me? And they always know. I, I, everybody I've ever talked to know the answers to all of these questions. They they all they know what's going on. But they don't know what's happening inside. They don't know why it's happening. That's the whole thing. I've never had anyone know why it's happening. Uh, the one time somebody said, I know why it's happening, I couldn't help him. Because he thought, all I got to do is learn to go from negative thinking to positive thinking. And I'm going to go back to the tour again, PGA Tour. I thought that's that's not really what it is. But this was like fifteen years ago when I really didn't have some of the strategies I have now to try to help make sure that I help people move in the right direction. Anyway, but people don't know what's why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. They have most of them don't have any idea. Because they don't they've never studied the mind. They don't want to study motivation. Now I think motivation has provided the insights that the players I work with need. So what I do in the first session is I start helping them understand right away what's going on. I get an, it doesn't take that long, maybe 30, 35 minutes to get me, to get the picture. To give the the general understanding of why this is all happening to them. So I give them that right up front. And I, and I don't give everything to them, but I give them because it's too detailed and interactive. but You give them the main parts and those main parts. I've never had someone not go, Oh, uh, I'm not sure about that there. Every time they're like, oh, that makes total sense. And the reason it makes total sense is because that's how our mind works. So all they had to do is get a little awareness and it's like, okay, now they totally get that now. So then as we continue to work together, it's all about um, identifying other situations, very specific contexts in their competitions or rounds that bring forth other aspects or nuances and situations that, might lead them to have uh, a certain process in their mind that happens that leads to a very specific change in decisions or their movement patterns. And so their movement patterns are their swing and their stroke. And so I think it's really important, and I've been having lots of conversations with my clients these days, about being able to help them understand why is this swing flaw popping up now in this situation, when it doesn't in this situation and we need to understand the specifics about what's the reason your brain is sending this message to your muscles. That's, that's what I've been doing a lot of lately. And it's been really gratifying. And because that's in the end, what people are really wondering, why, why is it that, um, you know, some of the basic ones would be, why do I get quick from the top? That's so common. And we started, well, here's the, here's a mode of, if we talk through it and try to figure it out. I don't know that right away. I have my thoughts because I've worked with enough people. I have an idea, but I don't know that. So we have to explore it together, always together. It's a, it's a, it's a way that we, I ask the questions. They haven't been asked those kind of questions before. They end up with some insights that they develop and then we figure it out. And it's like, Oh, that's why you're getting quick or that's why the club is closing at impact that's why and it's it's i real uh, this whole idea about how much of the game is mental and all that stuff i don't even get into the percentages because it doesn't make sense to me to think about it that way but it's like a swing is mental it's also skilled. it's all mm-hmm. skill it's technical it's everything it's yeah. physical i mean you you, you obviously know the I, I know the importance of the body if you, you can't if you can't do certain things then you can have the best image in your mind and you can't do it. Okay. So everything is necessary. It's a hundred percent physical, mental, technical, everything. That's the way I look at it. So anyway, that's why we can look at, well, this, everything interacts. So if it's closing down and I'm left-handed, so that's why I'm doing it this way. So it's closing down. There's a reason for that. We figure we can figure that out a lot of the times. It's like, what's happening there in, in your mentality. Sometimes it's, What's your concept of what you need to do to get the ball to avoid that area over there or to get over here? Usually it's an avoidance, usually, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it's excitement; It's too much eagerness that's creating the problem. Um, but anyway, so we, we get to the details. And I will typically work with somebody like I do. Like I have different things. I, I'll do 10 sessions. I really like 10 sessions. Because we can get into all the details in the various situations, debrief certain tournaments, and then, hey, if we got it all in ten sessions, we're good. I used to do one session and try to do it all in one, and, and you know, a lot of times it would work out pretty well. But then you'd always wonder, what are we missing in these new contextualized situations that we didn't get a chance to talk about that have nuances that we need to talk about?
0: That's a lesson rather than coaching, is the way I sort of look at that a little bit i think so
1: i mean i think it's such a collaborative effort between the two of us and um it's it's working together it's having conversations it's 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 me knowing what questions to ask that, that's probably be the skill i have is because of the knowledge i have i that's the that's what i can provide and then i can help them put it together but if they're if they don't if they're not able to give me some information i'm kind of useless Unless we go out and I can see it. And most of the time I'm doing Zoom. Mm -hmm. These people that I'm working with are not typically from South Dakota. They're from all over the place. And so therefore it's on Zoom. And so I'm not able to be on the course with them or with them. And that's a bit of a disadvantage, I think. Um, On the other hand, it forces them to be able to, if they don't know an answer, then we go, go, here's what you're doing this week, right? Here's what we're going to do. Here's some information I would love to have if you can you can find that and discover that this week. And then so that that allows them to to be, learn how to observe themselves in a, in a way that's really constructive. When someone goes
0: to, say, a swing coach or a golf coach or a physical trainer. They get clear, let's say, programs or schedules, practice plans to work on. Like here's your five exercises, do three sets, or here is, you know, the drill I'd like you to do for helping your path go more to the right and for your dynamic loft to be down or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff that you, I don't want to say prescribe, but encourage golfers to do, does it end up being more of an inquisitive mindset and trying to find out more about themselves, as they're doing the things they already do or are there extra exercises or things that you might have them to do that are clearly separate to what they were already doing if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah it does um well we definitely do a deep dive into the uh the routines we do a deep dive into every phase of the shot which would be i just everybody has different ways of sorting out the phases of a shot but i just do the uh i I look at the the uh picking of the of the shot which is the assessment of the conditions and all of that stuff and then it's the uh priming of the shot and and that's what you're doing with your mind to, to 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 kind of continue the strength of the plan that you've just created and there's the there's the uh you know pretty much performing the shot and then you've got In between shots, there's very specific purposes for that time in between shots. Okay. So you break it into these different phases and then we do a deep dive into what they already do in each one of those phases. And that's where I typically would explore different ways of doing that process. That's where it all comes down. That's where the, here are some different things you can do. And, and I always have them explore it in practice and training and in, in their practice rounds so they can determine what's going to really work best for them i don't like to just pres- like you you you're very insightful i don't prescribe it i encourage an exploration of these possibilities and then i'll say here's a possibility and here's why i think this could be useful to you but here um uh, uh, someone else didn't like this as well because of this reason so here's here's something i'd like you to look for and, and to do so the mental game problems, the struggles can happen at any one of those phases. So we have to break them apart and we got to figure out where they happen and um, and when they happen and what particular situation in the phases of the shot it happens. And so then we go like, so for instance, I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, a client, and he wanted to work on some putting and I had him just go through his whole routine. I asked him all sorts of questions. I want to get down into the nitty gritty of it all about where his mind is at, what he does with his body at every state every in the in the reading of the green, in getting the speed, when he gets the speed, when he gets the line, what he does with slope, what he does with Yeah, you know, I wanna know all those details. And when when somebody um is having trouble with their ball striking, I wanna know their I wanna know all their swing thoughts and feels and their knowledge of their swing.
0: You might need I, therapy after that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's, I love doing that. It's a great analysis. I'm not a swing instructor. I never tell them what they should do with their swing, but I've studied it enough where I always I feel like I always know what they're talking about so I can understand. Okay, so so with this person, what happened was that he, he wasn't – he was getting the speed. He was trying to still take in information when he was in his practice strokes and when he was over the ball before his – he's a good player. and, and, I, and I, So there's a situation where I went, okay, here's a scenario where you've it's a mis mistiming of the information. And so let's talk about when that information might be best to bring in and then why and how that could be beneficial if you get it earlier. And so there's an example of and that happens a lot where it's actually a part of the actual way they play the game that is changed. Yeah, and that's a that, but the other part though I should say Mike though to answer the second part. Sometimes it is just perspective. It's motivational perspective. And that's with a player, another player I'm working with now. We had a conversation, and you'd be interested in this, I think, uh, for sure. We had a conversation two days before a, an in, a national invite tournament. She's a college player. And she had been struggling. She didn't know this, but we figured it out as our conversation. She had been struggling with the pressure she was feeling from people that have always told her how talented she was. Now, it's incredible how many people that this is hurt in a sense. And, and I have a strong belief about it. Um, I've seen it left and right all the time, lots of clients. So I deal with this, the nature-nurture issue and what's happened by what they've been told. So what happens, like a lot of people have these expectations placed on them because they're so talented. But what happens is that they're not playing as well. Then they wonder, what's wrong with you? right they get that impression their 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 parents their coaches it's like you should be better than this right now that's they may not say that but they get that message some say it and and so that's what she was dealing with and she didn't even know it and she goes that's it well it took all that pressure off her and she goes and wins the tournament hmm. which she had never won you know you tell the tell all the positive stories on a podcast right <laughs> but you know what there's a lot of them Things like that can make a huge difference. Did I tell her to do anything different? No, no. She's got it. She, we we added some other things in her routine earlier. This had the first time that had come up. That was all perspective. That just took all that weight off her shoulders. She realized it wasn't her. Her parents were doing the best she, they could by trying to get her to feel good and be confident by telling her how talented she was. Her coaches were trying to, you well. Know, Coaches, I think, were trying to do the same thing by having to realize how confident she was. But that backfires so often with players. It's incredible. And so there was just another example where this time it's just perspective. That's all she really needed.
0: On nature versus nurture, I think it's clear that for certain activities where basically the result is hugely determined or fully determined by a physiological output that there is definitely genetic predispositions that are an advantage. It gets a little bit tougher to, I think, understand or or dig through when we're talking about maybe somebody's ability to learn a skill or to repeat a skill more closely. Have you delved into, or do you have any thoughts on, or or do we know it all? Are certain people born with, I don't want to call it talent, but genetics that right. make it easier for them to to essentially have better fine motor skill?
1: I did not know that we were going to have this conversation, but I'm happy to, because I don't know if there's any area that I've spent more time <laughs> delving into over my lifetime. <laughs> I mean... I'm a study person. I just study I read study all the time okay so I've been doing it for 30 years all right so one of the areas I delved into early because it was going to be related to my dissertation was in this nature nurture issue because the dissertation was on practice and the um, elements of practice that seemed to be the most successful or effective okay but in doing that and then I wrote I should t- I should say this when I was in graduate school for my doctorate I chose to do a project uh instead of uh the the uh, uh the written comprehensive exam, I wanted to do something creative instead of just you know write out answers to questions and so i I spent a whole bunch of time lots and lots and lots and lots of hours and hours upon hours um reading on intelligence theories and creating a new model of intelligence that incorporated motivation into the process of intel- intellectual development how it specifically happened what were the Mental mechanics of motivation and how that would impact people's intelligence. Well, certainly, you can't find any uh, more hot topic than intelligence when it comes to nature nurture. That's, that's in the history of psychology, that's been so controversial. It's been incredible. So, anyway, what I did then was delve into um, molecular biology a little bit. Now, I'm no expert on it by far. Uh, molecular genetics. I looked at, uh, I discovered, I didn't discover it. I discovered that this is a field, epigenetics. Yeah. So I discovered that, uh, that that was a long, long time ago, many years ago and neuroplasticity 25 years ago when, you know, it was, it was out there, but people still didn't believe it. They didn't believe your brain could really change like that. So I was delving into all this stuff, my early, and I was delving in into Anders Erickson would be a guy who put together the whole work on deliberate practice well known at Florida State psychology professor great thinker anyway I he was a generous good man as well as far as I knew uh, in our conversations and email and correspondence just so generous just want to throw that out about Anders Erickson but Anders was on the extreme side of acquired skills and that he couldn't see any evidence other than what you just said basically yes I mean Height's going to be an advantage. There's certain physical uh, abilities that can be uh, very highly genetically related, loaded, that uh, could be um, an advantage. But he wasn't convinced by any research he looked at, and boy, he looked at it. I don't know. He probably did more than I did. I don't know. But uh, he uh, he couldn't come to the conclusion that um, genetics was the reason for the individual differences at the top of the rung of world-class performance now. So I've looked at the genetic studies I've looked at, I've looked at um, a number of the different uh, possible versions of certain genes that are associated with, with fast twitch fibers, explosive power, et cetera. And I am not convinced. And the reason why is because if we understand how genes work, we understand that there's an interaction of all sorts of genes that are producing any kind of effect. And they're really not producing any effect on their own. They're just telling what protein should be uh, constructed in that cell. And that's and there's a number of other factors that are impacting whether or not that ever comes to some fruition. And then, of course, we know that genes can be turned on and off. Some of them can. So we, we know the, the incredible adaptability and flexibility of genes. We know that. We know the incredible adaptability of the brain. We know the incredible adaptability of the body. We don't know as well. Because you know that fast-twitch fibers can change metabolism with certain specific kind of training. That's why you, you have people do training that's going to train fast-twitch fibers. But we don't know because the, the work hasn't been done with the long longitudinal studies that are experimental in, in nature. So we're, we're, you don't want to take and do a bio, muscle biopsy on a baby. That's painful. And that's just unethical at this point, right? So, but wouldn't it be nice if we could, and then do a longitudinal study and put people in different groups and have them do different activities over their lifetime, we would finally be able to have some better information than we have now. At this point, we can only guess based on informed information. Now you see it, you, you've been in a, you're in a field where you see very specific kinds of abilities, like even jumping. And that's, I reached out to you for my book. In that respect. And so when it comes to golf, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's how I look at it. There are so many ways that you can put all of the things you have as strengths and weaknesses body, mind, everything and put it together in a way that is going to be incredible and amazing. That's actually
0: a perfect way of putting it. Like, I think that there's so many ways that you can become an elite level golfer there's very few ways you can run 9.8 seconds for 100 meters so like in terms of the amount of people that have the raw materials to become an excellent golfer let's say a, a deep into the plus handicap or professional golfer i would say lots of people have the genetics required for that to run 9.8 in 100 meters, I'm going to say there's way (laughs) less people have the genetic raw materials that make that possible, regardless of their training of when they started and how long it was. There may not be like, uh, let's say, enough scientific evidence to prove that point yet, but that's definitely a belief. I'm I'm willing to, to say I believe in at present for sure.
1: Well, that's all we can do. That's all we can do is look at all this, any kind of evidence we have available to us. And for most people, it's not the academic evidence. It's the evidence they see from observation. And then they use their reasoning abilities to try to figure it out. And they can, they can see real life examples of people who might do certain activities for a long time and not make much of a change. And then they, they go, well, that doesn't seem like they probably have the genetics to make the change. Otherwise, they would have made a change. I think there are some alternative a- answers to that, but here's the thing, Mike. I'm in agreement with you that it's a belief system. That's what it gets down to. We don't have, we we we're not able to scientifically validate natural talent. We're not able to scientifically validate any genetic um, makeup that creates all of these. The nine point eight you know, mm-hmm. hundred meter, whatever. We we're not able to validate that. At birth. Yeah, certainly. And so we don't know yet. So we just use our best guess, our best estimate, best understanding. And, and in the end, the question that I care about is this. Because of the fact that we don't know the answer, we have beliefs. And we have to, the belief matters, though, because it's going to impact how we think about ourselves and others in terms of what's possible. So there's two questions. One is, do you have some genetic advantage at birth? That, that could very well be the case. And that's, that's where I'm more likely to agree with.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm particularly interested here in terms of the ability to, to learn fine skills. You know, I'm, I'm not skills. talking about to bench press 500 pounds or, yeah. you know, that's what's run a 4.2 40-yard 40 dash. Like, I mean yeah. more like the ability to do something with extreme levels, of control. levels or, of control or maybe the ability to do it with extreme levels of control on bigger stages or, or with exactly. senses of perceived pressure. And um, that's, yeah. that's kind of where I'm going with this. Okay. I, I know for sure, like you, you can't, we never find out this because to find out this person or these people have always done the work to get there. So it's very hard then to backtrack and say, "Well, this is what they were born with." Yeah, but they also had, you know, twenty years of kind of re- <laughs> really, really hard, or ten years yeah. of really hard work. So that's yeah, can't hard to distinguish them.
1: Exactly, you're exactly right. That's the hard part about looking at the acquisition of these skills and saying, "Well, because they worked hard, it must be because they worked hard." No, that's not a that's not a firm conclusion either that we can make. You're exactly right. We can't separate. Here's the problem. We can't separate nature and nurture except with genetic diseases and disorders. We can't because they are interactive from conception through death. They're always interacting, they need each other. So it's like I'm somebody who believes that um, I don't want to put a ceiling on someone's potential. And I don't want to do that. But um, it's, and so, but it doesn't mean that I don't believe genetics are 100% of why we are who we are. I, I'm, the, I'm the person who says things don't always add up. We have, we, they're multiplied. They're interactive. That means your genes and your environment, your, your, all of that interacts together to create whatever you end up with. Right. So I'm not somebody who's naive to say genes don't matter. They, we need them and we, people have different patterns and it matters. The question I think it comes down to in the end is this. This is at least for my clients, and it may not be for everybody, but for my clients, I'm going to ask them this question. I say, you know, let's say that you don't believe you can make it to the to the PGA Tour or LPGA Tour. You want to, but let's say you don't believe you can. So you don't you don't really dedicate yourself toward it fully. You go through the motions a little bit, which is usually what happens when people don't really believe it. They go through the motions. It looks like they're working hard, but they're not doing the things that really change the brain and can really create epigenetic changes. But anyway, let's say that they they just kind of go through the motions. And then we say, let's say you found out later on that you could have. All right, so you made a mistake. That's one mistake you can make. The other mistake is you decided to dedicate yourself toward becoming a PGA or LPGA player. You put 30 years of your life into that. It's a long time, but you put 30 years in your life and you never made it. You found out, you know what? You never were able to make it. You just didn't have what it took. And is there
0: people who could do that and literally not come close? They end up being a fine handicap.
1: And is that, and what if that's the case? My question is what mistake was the worst mistake? Nobody can make that decision for you. That's up to you. And that's what we're at. I, in a sense, that's, that's where it gets to. What mistake are you better, more willing to make? And so we end up saying, let's say that's the case because, hey, I have people I'm working with who want to make the PGA Tour. All right. So there is no certainty, obviously, that they're going to make it. It's a, it's a, uh, lo- that's a long shot for everybody. When Tiger Woods was three years old, it was a long shot to make the PGA Tour, let alone do everything he did to be one of the top two players in the game in history. So I would say it was a long shot even at three years old because there's so many things that could get in the way, right? So even with someone who wants to become a five handicap from a 15 handicap, there's so much that you're going to need to do and so much investment of energy and time and attention and resources toward that. And you don't know if it's ever going to happen. You don't know if you're going to go from 15 to 20. You don't know it. And because you don't know it, you're going to need to have other reasons for why you're doing what you're doing and other benefits in that journey. And I always have that conversation with people because you need to know that it was worth it. If it never even come, you never even come close. It has to have been worth it. And if you love the game, it's it's going to have been worth it because there's so many benefits of doing something you love getting into flow. It's just good for so many aspects of your life. And so in that respect, but if you are just counting, And making it to that and you just forget the process of getting there, then uh, I think you're vulnerable and you're setting yourself up to some real problems there. So I I, I say, hey, I don't care if somebody wants to go for it. I'll be there to support them. But I want them to know what they're in for. Hmm.
0: Mike, you mentioned neuroplasticity, our ability to change and learn skills, I think, or improve our skills. Is that correct? Like that's the, the, what what it's it's describing? basically,
1: neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change due to experience. And that experience can both be sensory stuff coming into the brain, uh, thought processes and or other internal things happening in the brain or other mental, even motivation and goals can eventually indirectly change what happens with the brain. Or actually, I would say directly because it's happening within the brain.
0: How does age affect our ability to do this?
1: Well, it uh, it slows it down a bit. So um, here's what happens at at a certain period of time in younger life. There are some genetic changes that are part of maturation, just part of biological maturation that happen with genes. With and I, I don't remember the details off the top of my head whether one's turning on or off a, f- a few of them. But generally, what happens is we end up uh, when when people when kids when we're kids we have a we we hardly have any inhibitory neuron receptors. We don't we don't hardly have anything that's telling you to stop learning one thing versus another. So people wonder how can these kids be such sponges and learn all these things so well when they're younger? Why do they have such neuroplasticity when they're younger? Because they don't have to be fully focused and attentive and concentrating in the moment because there's not much for inhibition. As those changes in biological maturation occur, we end up with more neurons that are inhibitory. So what that means is that we have to be much more selective in what we're focusing on in order for the neuroplastic process to occur. And that means you need to be concentrating concentrating with a very specific goal in mind with the intent to change something. So I'm going to say those three again. You got to be concentrating, focused on this one thing, Placing your attention in the right spot at the right time, you've got to have a very specific goal. You can't just go through the motions with your attention. You got to have a goal. That's the that's a that's a part of the neurotrans uh, um, transformation process that happens. And then thirdly, um, you've got to you have to have some intent to improve. You've got to be tempting to do something better or different. If the research shows that. Acetylcholine is a is a hormone uh, and a neurotransmitter, and it's a part of this neuroplastic process, and it releases in the neurons that allow those neurons to start making some longer-term changes. If you're doing something that's already established and all you're doing is just doing it, there's no acetylcholine release. And and you're not going to have the neuroplastic processes occur. That's long term. So that requires a a focused goal with the, with a certain purpose. Now, if we look at golf, you know, I, I like to practice. I go to the range, I go to the chipping green and I've seen your videos. You go out and when you can, you get out there and you work on things. I love it. I just enjoy it. But I love to watch the people on the range too. Cause of course I'm just thinking about all this and, and I can't read their mind, but you can guess. And you know, as well as I do, I'm sure, that uh, what I just described is not happening in most golfers. Mm-hmm. And then they, and people are wondering, why aren't I getting better? Why is all this practice not really worth it? Well, it's not worth it because your brain isn't really changing. And the reason it's not changing is because of the mental aspect of what you're not doing at the time. So what's really interesting is a lot of what we need to do as adults is the same thing that is a part of the definition of deliberate practice that Anders Ericsson came up with in 1993. So uh, he didn't know all these new details at that point in time, but it's pretty cool. How much
0: would you say neuroplasticity has slowed down or how much more difficult okay. is it to change as you get older? Because I know the vast majority of the people listening to this aren't kids or teenagers, Exactly, they're, they're yeah. adult golfers or maybe even senior golfers.
1: I don't think it slows down enough to to uh, um, create any disillusion in anybody. Uh, I remember this guy. I don't remember. He was in his 90s. He was a uh, religious person. He had never learned to read. And he wanted to read the Bible. He learned to read. Now, that the neuroplasticity involved in that is very high. That's that. That requires a lot. Um, it's so. I mean, we can, you know, teaching old dog new tricks. We definitely can do that all the way through our lives. It never changes unless there's an inability to focus with an intent to improve with a specific goal. Once that ends, for some biological reason in the brain, then then that's that's called brain damage. That's why that would happen. But if there's no brain damage. You know, I, I sometimes ask people this question, Mike. It's like, let's say it's somebody with an intellectual disability. You know, I ask this in relation to people who are wondering if they can achieve something. And it goes back to the nature nurture to a certain extent. I said, yeah, we don't know the ceiling of someone's potential. But, like, if somebody with an intellectual disability is definitely going to, they're learning sl- more slowly. That's a part of what the definition is of intellectual disability. They're learning more slowly. Is their learning over? Is their learning done? No, it's not. The learning processes still can work for them too to to continue to learn and to improve. Um, it's just more slow. So it's, and, and that's not a great analogy because somebody who's 60, 70 years old, 80 years old, their neuroplasticity is good enough if everything's still intact in the brain to be able to make changes. Not only to swing, but also the personality, even at that time, or motivation. You know, people can make these kind of changes based on life perspective changes, boom. So I really am a very strong optimist, Mike. I don't think I would ever counsel anyone to say that because you're older, um, neuroplasticity is going to be so slow, it's not going to be able to make a difference for you, and your efforts are going to be for naught. I don't believe that at all. There's no evidence to show that. It just slows down a bit, which means just be sure you do it better. Mm-hmm. Do it better than a lot of young people who don't understand the importance of focus and goal-directed behavior and mind and, um, and the intent to improve. Do it better. And you can do better than a lot of young people because they're not, their mind isn't constructive. So they're not getting the neuroplasticity that they're capable of. I have one more question on
0: neuroplasticity, Mike, and then I will let you go. In terms of training volume or practice volume. So I think we can all agree that to a certain extent, we need more volume to, to make these changes. Like there has to be a certain threshold that we're meeting, or it's going to be very hard to stimulate these adaptations. If, if we take, let's just say a set load of, let's just say, minutes of high focused work per week. This might not be a perfect example, but it hopefully gets the point across. How does the effect of the distribution and frequency of these minutes make a difference? So to keep it simple, let's just say, for example, someone could practice for two hours on a Saturday morning, or they could break that time up into uh, very small chunks throughout the week, or even someone an hour a day versus two twenty or thirty minute sessions.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, I think the research is really clear on that. Overall, on average, what's best is to break it into those smaller, shorter periods of time and do it more frequently. Um, and so that that would be a to me that'd be a very clear answer. On the other hand, I would like to add to it to say that um part of part of the reason is because memory is strengthened by its retrieval so it's called retrieval practice and i think uh robert Bjork many years ago give him credit for that he's uh he was a motor learning expert and uh anyway that's that's where I first heard it from him, and uh, that was you know quite a few years ago. But and I, I've a, I've used that in academic learning. It doesn't matter, cognitive anything. So retrieval practice is the key. So what that means is you retrieve what you just did after a short little break, right? You have to bring it back into your mind after you've forgotten it. Now, when I say forgotten, I've just said you let it out of your working memory for a while. That's all it means. So it's not on your mind right for a while. Then you bring it back from, from your intermediate to long-term memory. Then you bring it back. That's retrieval. So like I, I'm always, like in, in my, with my students, I'm telling them, if, if you want to remember something better tomorrow, you just learned something to, this morning at 9 o'clock in our class. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to have a whole bunch of interference going on today. You have a whole lot more that you're going to experience both knowledge-related content, concepts, uh, and also experiences. But mostly the knowledge is going to come in and it's going to come in and it's going to interfere with that. So what you want to do is retrieve this later. Pick out a couple key points that you want to remember. Retrieve it in about an hour and a half. And then retrieve it in about another two hours. Retrieve it six or seven times today and definitely right before you go to bed. And do it the next day four or five times. The next day three times. Next time. If you really want to, that's what I would say to do because it's the retrieval that matters. The same thing, the reason why variable practice, random practice, one of the reasons why that's so helpful and uh, why block practice isn't necessarily bad. I, I, I think block practice has a great use. Um, but if anyway. it's
0: done with high focus, especially. You got I it. You think got it. Is, you got that's it. one of the arguments that, I find very difficult to just ever get into. And yeah, I think sometimes the just the suggestions around it are are not particularly very helpful because, (laughs) yeah, it's it's if if you watch a very good golfer practicing, sometimes what they're doing may possibly be labeled as block practice but I think it's done with a level of concentration and focus and feedback that's usually not considered when
1: people often talk about block practice. You got it. You hit it so well, well said, well said. I mean, uh, yeah, the motions are important because it feeds back into the brain to know what you just did as motor feedback and sensory feedback, so that's all important. But really, where's the learning happening? Yeah, right. The learning is happening through what you're doing in your mind. Like we never say, I learned you. We say, well, I taught you something to think about and way to do it. And then you do all the the work. That's how it works. So you're exactly right. Um, But anyway, that's how that's kind of how that all works, right? The variable and random practice provides a a little bit more demand on doing more retrieval Mm -hmm. because you've changed this and then you change that. Now you go back to that again. Then you go back to that after you've let it go. And so you're doing a lot more retrieval. That's how I theorize the value of it. You can do the same thing with block practice.
0: Yeah, one of the things that um, are one of the reasons I asked you about the frequency there was I'm thinking of people who often say, I know a lot of people listening to this and who follow online. A lot of them work with golf instructors. They're really trying to improve their swing technique, improve their ball striking. One of the big challenges for most people is is time to do it because they realize when they try to make a significant change to their technique and their ball striking it's like feel like i'm on a good path my instructor is really good but man this takes a long time like this is hard so where i'm getting at with the frequency thing is if yeah. you can have three or five minutes every hour or two, oh, pra- gosh. practice that movement you're trying to change you know what That'd i mean be incredible it will be new each time so there's so many people working from home it's like, hey, grab that club, grab that whatever, work on the pivot motion or the takeaway or whatever it is Absolutely. or your setup that your coach has showed you, because I think that's where people can really chunk things and the, the I setup is helpful. Mike, the, I last thing I, the last thing I have okay. for you is, so I know your book is called The Motivation Game, A Course on the Psychology of Golf Improvement which was my Christmas present from my fiance. Oh, I, well, I, how really, I, is that? I really enjoyed it. I told oh, her to get you. it for me. It wasn't a, a, ran, a random pick out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they no, I appreciate
0: it. <laughs> um, I definitely recommend people pick that up. It's really good. I will say definitely it's a, and you actually say this at the start of the book. Yes, I do. It's a little bit different to most, I will say, books on the mental game of golf. Uh, it's, it's more educational. It's not... I'm going to say the quickest or breeziest read in terms of surface level information. Um, in oh, fact, sure. I feel like I should read it again for sure. Uh, but other than that, how can golfers work with you, find out more about your services or get in touch?
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I would say the easiest way would just go to my website, which is the same as the name of the book, the motivation com. And so when they go there, there's a place where they can have a query or contact me and uh, they can get straight to my email. Um, I even might have my cell phone number on that website, but they can get to my email and I'll get it and I'll get back to them. And the other thing is um, the, uh, they can buy my book there now that's where they can buy the the, So if they have any interest in the book, then they can go to the motivation and right at the top in yellow is purchase book. And then they can find it. And what that is that that book is that I can only ship it to the U.S. um It's so funny. It's the first time I did it. I wasn't. I'm. It's just kind of a homemade website, and I wasn't really sure how it worked. And so I didn't make that clarification. And someone from Germany bought it, and so I lost money on that book <laughs> because the shipping was so high. But anyway, it's funny. So I can do it through the U.S. Any place in the U.S. I can ship It's twenty-five bucks, and I. I have, I'll, I'll sign it. Whether you care about that or not, it'll be signed. And then secondly, um, it's already got the taxes and the shipping included. So everything's just 25 straight bucks. And, and, but that's all there. And, I, and I'm on Twitter and stuff too, as Mike Reblis. But, uh, that's probably the best thing. If they have an interest in uh, working with me, um, yeah, the motivation they can find, find me there.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. I really enjoyed that. And I'm looking sure. forward to getting the listener feedback.
1: Thanks a lot, Mike. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Appreciate it.